Hello and welcome back to Scrubcast XS, the podcast for on-the-go MRCS revision. Our episode today is on the billary section of the MRCS syllabus and I'm uh, happy to have with me today Mr John Hammond who is a consultant transplant HPV and sarcoma surgeon at the Freeman Hospital in Newcastle. Thanks uh, Tom, it's really nice to be doing the uh, podcast. Slightly daunting broad range of subject area to talk about but hopefully we can keep it concise and go through it all. Yeah exactly, I think we're all just hoping to get a broad overview of what is expected um, on the MRCS uh, syllabus, um, but with a bit of deeper insight from uh, someone like yourself. So let's kick off with the gallbladder, what the function of the gallbladder is more broadly the biliary tract. Yeah, so the biliary tract is a really uh, common problem for surgical presentations and, um, and uh, you know, if, when you're on call you'll encounter patients with gallstone or biliary tract disease. So it's important for any general surgeon to have a good working knowledge of it. When I think about the biliary tract, it, it, so it consists of the left and right common and common hepatic ducts, the gallbladder, the cystic duct and the bile duct. Um, and so for practical purposes, purposes, when you look at the uh, liver in, in the cadaveric workshop or um, in the textbooks, uh, the extrahepatic component of the bile duct really consists of the confluence of the, the right and left hepatic ducts and, and then the uh, extrahepatic bile duct going down into the, uh, the duodenum. Um, so the gallbladder attaches to that and its real purpose is to kind of store and concentrate bile. So we've talked a bit about the healthy biliary tract um, but perhaps we could move on to what can go wrong within that tract and I think we'll all be uh, very familiar with gallstones but let's revisit what they are, who gets them, why they get them and the problems that they might cause. Well gallstones are really common um, I think 10 to 15 percent of the adult population will have them. Uh, in cadaveric studies, 12 percent of men, 24 percent of women, and so that means there are potentially about seven and a half million patients in the UK with, with gallstones. But importantly, only uh, around 15 percent of those become symptomatic. And uh, so it's very common to encounter a patient with gallstones in a scan, but obviously a smaller proportion of those will go on to to have symptoms. And those symptoms really range from something quite simple to like biliary colic to more serious conditions like uh, inflammation in the gallbladder, stones migrating out of the gallbladder to cause obstructive jaundice or pancreatitis or gallstone guys. You put in a few different conditions there so maybe let's um, unpack them because it's quite good for the exam to be able to clearly differentiate between what is colic, what is cholecystitis. So when you use the word biliary colic what do you mean by that? So it can be very much determined on the history so patients will typically describe an episode of pain Worse when they eat food, particularly fatty food, they'll come on after that meal and it's sort of a, a response to the stimulation for the gallbladder to contract. So the patients usually have gallstones and they'll, uh, a stone may impact at heart's pouch or entrance to the cystic duct and you get spasmodic pain. So it's usually self-limiting, it ends spontaneously and that differentiates it very often from patients with acute cholecystitis where it's an inflammatory process. And typically the pain is sh isn't short-lived, it persists, often associated with raised inflammatory markers, will, will be a more common cause for an acute presentation uh, to hospital. The history there is obviously different. Is the biochemistry affected in colic or is it only within cholecystitis? That's a good question. I mean, no patient completely fits all the criteria and experience will develop in terms of how you assess and decide to uh, manage that patient. I think... Patients with gallstones have an inflammatory response. I think uh, if you were to do analysis of the gallbladder walls, you'd probably see quite widespread inflammation. And so when we see patients in, uh, 
who we undertake cholecystectomies on and we review their post-operative histology, even if patients have only ever presented with biliary colic symptoms, many of them will still have some evidence of inflammation on their scans. So that probably tells us that we, we'll get a mixed pattern with those blood tests. In answer to your question, I would, exp- I would differentiate those two by evidence of raised inflammatory markers, so an elevated white cell count or an elevated CRP or a temperature in acute cholecystitis. Quite a good way of discriminating between colic and cholecystitis. Systemically within the patient, would you expect someone with cholecystitis to be systemically unwell and how variable can that be? It can be really variable and practice is really changing in how we manage patients with acute cholecystitis. There's been a real move in the UK to offer emergency cholecystectomy for patients presenting with acute uh, gallstone-related disease, particularly acute cholecystitis. In, in, in terms of derangement of the liver function tests, differentiating acute cholecystitis to this kind of more complex condition of biliary sepsis where you may get some derangement in the LFTs can be a bit, bit difficult. But when I start to see derangement in the LF, in the bilirubin or in the alkaline phosphatase, I start to think about, you know, could there be evidence of extra gallbladder stones, so could it be a uh, stone in the bile duct contributing to it, so is there also an element of cholangitis to that? Um, and so I think that's important to differentiate that in the workup, because it may then influence how you manage the patient subsequently. So we've started to talk a little bit about further investigation there, I think that neatly leads on quite naturally. So we've got a clinical picture, a patient with colic or with cholecystitis, and so we've taken a history, we've done an examination, perhaps we're thinking they have cholecystitis. We've done some blood tests, which maybe show some raised inflammatory markers, and then we move on, we can move on to do an ultrasound to confirm the presence of gallstones. If you were worried about stones outside of the gallbladder, as you were referring to there, what further investigations would be pertinent to do? That's a really interesting question because actually practice, again, is changing in the UK. There's a lot of very good uh, UK collaboratives investigating exactly that question. The Sunflower Study, which is a very widely recruited study around the UK, is, is looking at the, that, that question. So the, our options available to investigate it is probably the best way to think about it. So uh, absolutely right. On that ultrasound scan, which is probably be the first test that most patients will have, you might look for specific features which might guide you. So is there evidence of biliary duct dilatation on it? Can they actually visualise a stone within the biliary tree? That's obviously a a really important differentiator. Many units practice may be to undertake MRI, um, so MRCP, to characterise and really image the bile duct properly. That's a very useful test. What you might look for in that is the anatomy of your biliary tree, if there's evidence of biliary duct dilatation or any other strictures or other causes for the for the derangement in the liver function tests, uh, and then also are there any filling defects in the duct, like a, like a stone, for example. So those are some of the commonly applied tests. Then there are some more specialist tests that um, might be used. So some patients may have CT scans if they have severe sepsis um, or for other reasons, um, and patients may also you have the opportunity to undertake other tests like endoscopic ultrasound if you're at a specialist centre that offers it. You mentioned MRCP there. For you personally in, in, in your practice, when would you investigate someone with an MRCP above and beyond an ultrasound? So if a patient presents with in the acute setting or in the outpatient setting is probably the first thing to differentiate. Um, let's take a, a patient presenting with acute cholecystitis Things that might guide me towards undertaking an MRI before we were, for example, to offer them a cholecystectomy would be uh, a persistent derangement in the liver function test. It's actually really, really common to see mild derangement in the liver function test in a patient presenting with biliary sepsis. And that can be because we just have inflammation in the gallbladder and 
and in, in those patients, often the bilirubin in itself will settle. If that's the case, uh, then you may not feel that the rule of uh, uh, MRI is essential. If you haven't, if those results haven't settled, or there are other things that might point you in the direction for stones in the biliary system, like an episode of acute pancreatitis, then uh, then I would probably steer towards undertaking that test. Another common test which is asked about is an ERCP, well, a test and a procedure. Um, when is it indicated to under- undertake endoscopic intervention in a patient with gallstone disease? Again, it depends very much on the context that you're, you're encountering that patient. So in the acute setting, I might think of having definitive evidence of, of stones within the bile duct. You may make a case for undertaking an endoscopy prior to a cholecystectomy to clear the duct of stones. Actually, again, that opens another can of worms about how, how best to manage that patient group. So gallstones with bile duct stones. And across the country, you'll see a range of different approaches. Some units may undertake a cholecystectomy, do an on-table cholangiogram, which we can talk a bit about in the, in the cholecystectomy section of this talk, and then offer management of the bile duct stone uh, at that point. So there are a number of methods that you could approach bile duct stones with. So patients could have an end, uh, ARCP to clear the duct, um, or they could have a, a bile duct exploration at the time of the procedure. Um, the frequency of cholecystectomy with bile duct expiration is very variable across the UK, and I think there are lots of factors that influence that uh, resource, time, um, experience, um, but there are a range of different approaches. But perhaps probably the most widely practiced would be endoscopic management of the stone followed by uh, cholecystectomy. So now we've talked about presentation, workup. Before we move on to definitive management of cholecystectomy, I just wanted to go back on to a couple of complications that you mentioned. You mentioned gallstone pancreatitis and one that you didn't mention but comes up a lot in exams is um, Meritzi syndrome. So perhaps we could talk a little bit about those um, before we move on to definitive management. So let's start with pancreatitis. How frequently do you see that and does it change the management that we've talked through already? Yeah that's a really good question. So we see a lot of gallstone pancreatitis but we're a regional uh, centre for pancreatitis and um, so it's a big part of our acute uh, work um, and and so I think the issue around managing someone with pancreatitis is really about defining the severity of the disease. Many of the majority of patients with pancreatitis will present with mild self-limiting disease and that's a very different condition to severe disease where there are really useful uh, criteria to help define it. Some historic ones like the Glasgow criteria and the Ranson score and then more kind of current terms like the Atlantic classification for severity. But actually, all those different scoring systems really look at the same thing. So they look at evidence of organ dysfunction. And it's not really a talk on pancreatitis, so I won't labour that too much. But that, that's kind of, when, when I see a patient with pancreatitis, that's really what we're establishing. Do they have evidence of local complications of the pancreatitis, which you might see in cross-section imaging, or um, do they have uh, evidence of organ dysfunction? And so in patients with mild gallstone pancreatitis, then usually that's a self-limiting disease. You're absolutely right, Tom. We'd probably think about doing an MR or an endoscopic ultrasound to see if there's stones in their duct uh, and then carefully consider how we'd manage that in terms of undertaking an endoscope, an ERCP to clear the duct at an interval and then taking out their gallbladder um, or uh, if the stone is cleared, then just offering them cholecystectomy. There's some very good guidelines in the UK around offering cholecystectomy for gallstone pancreatitis. 
the guidance is that should be undertaken on that admission. Logistically, that can be quite a challenging thing to offer sometimes, but it's what we all aim to do, subject to patient fitness and other factors. So, so yeah, so that would be my kind of algorithm for, for mild disease. For severe disease, focuses very much on organ support and that early critical care management, unless the, there's a, evidence of ongoing sepsis in the biliary system. I probably wouldn't rush to offering them endoscopic management of their bile duct stones if, that, if we find that. Thank you for talking through that. When we do a future episode on pancreatitis, we might explore that a bit more. But it's good to know that gallstone pancreatitis is a relatively common complication of gallstones and the management that you've described there. So the other complication that I mentioned was Maritzi syndrome. Um, could you talk us through what that is and how it's managed? Yeah, Maritzi syndrome is something which I think is quite badly described in textbooks, and it's hard to find really clear definitions of it. Of course, they do exist. So it's usually something that you pick up on imaging. Um, so you may have investigated a patient for derangement in the liver function tests with biliary duct dilatation on ultrasound, which then prompts an MR. And what you see on that MR is evidence of partial obstruction of the common hepatic duct. So if you can, if you can think back to your anatomy textbooks, then the gallbladder is connected to the common hepatic duct by the cystic duct. If a stone, a large stone, impacts in the, the neck of the gallbladder close to the cystic duct, you have inflammation in that area, and that causes effacement of the gallbladder and cystic duct to the common hepatic duct. And then you get inflammation, and, and eventually you can have fistula formation between the gallbladder and the uh, bile duct. And differentiating those on scan can be quite difficult. And so, first of all, it's being alert to it in anticipation of undertaking any treatment. A lot of the staging systems that are used to describe it really summarise that uh, that process of inflammation. So from simple pressure effects of a stone at, at common hepatic duct to true fistulation. Are Maritzi syndromes always managed in a tertiary centre? or? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And very often Maritzi, uh, or suspected Maritzi, is a, is a common reason for referral to a specialist centre. Let's now go on to talk about cholecystectomy. It's a very common operation. It's probably one of the first operations that junior trainees will be exposed to, and it's a common question on MRCS. So why don't we talk through a cholecystectomy, open or laparoscopic, and particularly focus on the anatomy as we go through, because obviously the anatomy comes up um, in a big way on the MRCS as well. Why don't we start with um, a description of a laparoscopic cholecystectomy because it's so common now um, and then we can talk about the perhaps indications for open and differences in approach. So um, for a laparoscopic cholecystectomy most people will practice a four port t- technique um, so that's a, a port close to the umbilicus, a port at the epigastrium and then two subcostal ports, create a pneumoperitoneum and you hopefully visualise the gallbladder at that stage. So the gallbladder sits on the visceral surface of the of the liver on the right lobe and it's connected to the common hepatic duct by the cystic duct. It's enveloped in peritoneum and then it, as the bile duct then it passes down to the to the duodenum and the hepatoduodenal lumen which is enveloped in peritoneum. And, and so typically you'll get your assistant to retract the gallbladder with a, an instrument retracting um, the fundus of the gallbladder and that should then create some traction on the Callous triangle. So callous triangle is a term that's really important to be familiar with, I think, for the exams and also visualising your anatomy. So it's formed by the uh, liver, the common duct and the cystic duct. And, and if you can imagine that's enveloped in peritoneum and fat and fibrous tissue. 
And so the aim of the operation really is to dissect out the structures that are going into it. So those are the cystic duct and the, uh, uh, the cystic artery. The big con concern, what we really worry about in, in closed cystectomy is damage to other structures, particularly the bile duct. So the concept of the critical view of safety is a, a term that was developed with an important step of a kind of confirmation or timeout before you, you clip structures. So the surgeon should dissect out Callow's triangle, but then extend the dissection onto the gallbladder fossa, or as they describe in the original description of critical view of safety, the cystic plate. And in addition to dissecting out that space, you should really define those structures so that you're certain visualising is the cystic duct and the cystic artery, not uh, other structures like the common duct tented up and pulled with traction. And then by dissecting onto the cystic plate or the gallbladder fossa, you're ensuring that you've got new structures returning into the gallbladder. And then at that point, with that critical view of safety, then you can look to clip or um, cut your cystic uh, duct and your uh, cystic artery. Just to go over briefly what you've said, and then you can correct me if I've got any of that wrong. You enter the abdomen, create a pneumoperitoneum, you are retracting the gallbladder, and then the first thing is to dissect out Callow's triangle, which you've described as inferior border of the liver, common hepatic duct, and cystic duct. Then the next step is the critical view of safety. At what point do you have that critical view? What are the defining features that you're looking at beyond having Callow's triangle and the cystic plate? Yeah, so I think the original guidance by the Strasbourg paper described having a third of the gallbladder dissected off the gallbladder bed. But in practice, people use often use more than that. The important thing to say is that different patients are different and the degree of inflammation that you have in that setting is different. So what I aim to do is have clear evidence that the gallbladder is being dissected off the gallbladder bed, the cystic plate, if you like, that the you've got a single uh, vessel going into the gallbladder, and I would often dissect that up certain that it's not going back into the liver and that you've got a, sing a single tube with cystic duct and that again there's no structures returning to the liver. People can think about the orientation and, and um, wider views uh, in relation to that. I think once I'm happy with that then at that point I'll, I'll, I'll clip and cut. A not uncommon scenario perhaps you've embarked on your dissection and you, you can't clearly obtain a, a critical view of safety then there's a lot of very good strategies to um, to, to mitigate that. So some surgeons may at that stage choose to convert to an open procedure um, to uh, facilitate a safe dissection. Um, another popular approach is the notion of doing a subtotal cholecystectomy. I think that's something which takes some experience and training, um, uh, but it is a, it's a, a widely uh, used approach for dealing with a difficult to dissect callous uh, triangle where there's extensive fibrosis and you, did, you can't safely uh, define the anatomy. So you mentioned an open cholecystectomy there and then um, subtotal. What are the indications for an open cholecystectomy before embarking on the laparoscopic? So are there certain patients where you would only consider an open cholecystectomy? And then let's go back after that to you've embarked on a laparoscopic. What is it specifically that would make you convert to open? Factors which might influence me to do it as an open operation would be um, history of previous abdominal surgery where they had difficult adhesions or problems related to that, a, a, a referral from another centre where they'd embarked on a cholecystectomy and weren't able to do that for similar reasons. The vast majority of open cholecystectomies we perform in our unit are undertaken as part of another procedure, so a, a, a cancer resection, which we often will do open. 
what would indicate for you that you needed to open someone while you were performing a laparoscopic cholecystectomy? I think a failure to progress or an inability to define safely the anatomy is, is what prompt me, prompts me to, to convert. You mentioned previously about on-the-table cholangiograms. When do you use that and what are the benefits of it? On-table cholangiograms are a really useful skill to develop and as part of your cholecystectomy. Principles behind undertaking an on-table cholangiogram are First of all, uh, I think about it as a mechanism of confirming your anatomy. Um, so just to describe what an on-table cholangiogram is, you undertake your callous dissection, you define the cystic duct, then you make a, a, a cut in the side of the cystic duct, and you insert a catheter or you use some specialised uh, forceps uh, to insert the catheter into the um, duct, and then you inject contrast. Obviously, you need any image intensification to do that and then you um, look uh, for some findings on that uh, cholangiogram. So specifically, you want to see that your catheter is in the cystic duct, not in another part of the biliary tree, that you get filling of the intrahepatic ducts on the left and the right side, and um, that you don't have any filling defects within your bile duct, and then uh, uh, lastly, that you get free flow into the duodenum. Now that we've come to the end of a uh cholecystectomy, um, I think a common question, but also because it's common in real life, is you get called to the post-operative cholecystectomy patient as the junior doctor, and the patient is unwell in some way. Can we talk about the common complications of a cholecystectomy um, and how they might present? I think what runs through my mind whenever I am going to see that patient, if they haven't had any imaging or other tests beforehand is, could they have had a bile leak post-procedure? Could there be something more serious like a bile duct injury? Things like bleeding will often be uh, present in different ways, they'll present more acutely. So thinking about those two things, then the time interval from surgery is important, patient status is really important, so is that patient well, do they have derangement level and function tests, and other things. I find cross-section imaging is a really important uh, test in those patients after they've been appropriately resuscitated and um, their blood tests are back. Um, and so uh, I would often opt for a CT in the first instance, uh, look to see if there's a fluid collection, let's see if there's any obvious abnormality within the bile duct. So why do patients develop bile leak after a cholecystectomy? It may be something um, related to the application of the clips. So they, um, uh, a clip may have come away or they may have had some breakdown or uh, other issue with the cystic duct stump. Um, there may be a small biliary radical within the um, gallbladder bed that's leaking, um, or it may be something more serious, like a underlying bile duct injury, which wasn't uh, detected at the time of surgery. Uh, and obviously you'll manage each of those slightly differently, um, but probably the first aim is to control the sepsis, either with a repeat laparoscopy or insertion of a drain, and then look to make sure that you've defined the underlying anatomy. Before we move on, can we just clarify, someone with a bowel leak post-operatively, when would that present? What symptoms would that patient present with? Different settings, you have a slightly higher incidence of bowel leak. So I think particularly in, a, in, a, in the acute cholecystitis, cholecystectomy, the acute cholecystectomy, there's a, a well-documented, slightly increased risk of bowel leak. Very often when I do an operation in the acute setting, I'll leave a drain post-operatively because I'm aware of that increased risk. So if they have a drain in, hopefully the drain is well placed and you may see evidence of bile within the drain. And then obviously that's a very easy way of detecting it. If there's no drain left in place, 
then um, you're probably reliant on cross-section imaging to determine that, or uh, repeat laparoscopy, for example. What kind of symptoms would that patient complain of? So pain is the most common um, symptom, and they may have raised inflammatory markers or symptoms and signs of sepsis. And then the other complication that we were talking about was bile duct injury. How does that present differently? Yeah, so um, bile duct injury is obviously our feared complication at the time of cholecystectomy. It may be detected at the time of surgery. Sometimes, though, bile duct injuries can be detected late. Again, that can be presented in a number of ways. They may have a drain in place, they may be bile detected in the drain, or they may develop derangement in the liver function tests. Hopefully it's detected early, and the timing of detection influences your approach. Clearly there's a difference between a patient presenting early in the operating room uh, where you can go and undertake repair primarily at that point in time versus presenting late where they may have developed um, concurrent sepsis and other issues which perhaps need to be managed in the first instance to, to make uh, surgery safe. An intervention that has come up a lot that we haven't yet talked about is PTC. What is PTC and when do you use it? So PTC is a, a radiological technique um, it's often used as a very broad term to, to describe um, percutaneous biliary interventions, but PTC basically means an image-guided approach to accessing the intrahepatic bile ducts. A bit like ERCP, historically it may have been used as, to a degree, a diagnostic test, but, but increasingly now it's limited to a surgical intervention. Where you use it? Well, its, it's sort of role is legion. It has many potential applications. The scenarios where we use it most commonly managing new patients with hyalur biliary tract cancers, where there's been a failed approach attempt at endoscopic drainage, when there are contraindications to endoscopic drainage, for example, someone doesn't have access to the duodenum because of previous gastric surgery, for example, or to manage biliary complications in patients who've previously had something like a hepatic jejunostomy. So you mentioned biliary carcinoma there. If you have a patient who's presenting perhaps with... Um, picture of obstructive jaundice within what group you would suspect biliary carcinoma as a cause and talk a little bit more or elaborate on their typical presentation. I suppose a dilemma on the acute take for any uh, junior doctor managing those patients is could this biliary tract obstruction be secondary to a biliary tract malignancy? The next test many of them will receive is an ultrasound which will show that they have biliary duct dilatation hopefully. And within that ultrasound, you're interested in two things. You're interested in the extent of that biliary tract obstruction, but also the level. And so is it intrahepatic or is it intrahepatic and extrahepatic, which will point you in the direction of the level of the obstruction. And so the, the next crucial step really is to think about adequate characterization of that. And so that's with effective cross-section imaging. Um, sometimes there's a temptation for those patients to be offered intervention at that stage, but actually at this point in their management, unless they've got a clear indication for biliary tract intervention, such as biliary sepsis, then you have an opportunity to fluid resuscitate that patient and image their biliary tract appropriately, usually with a CT, a three-phase CT, to look at the anatomy and the vascular anatomy of that level of obstruction. Um, so when I think about um, how I manage those patients, then what you're really trying to do with your cross-section imaging is determine, is there a mass lesion causing this? Then we want to stage and plan treatment. So that's thinking about resectability versus non-resectability. So 
Biliary tract cancers can be intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma and extrahepatic strictures, so gallbladder malignancy, perihilar cancers, and uh, extrahepatic bile duct tumours. The extrahepatic bile duct uh, tumours are a bit more complex because actually we often group them into one, m- multiple disease types into, into one group, and that's the distal bile duct stricture, which actually can be caused by an ampullary cancer, uh, a distal cholangiocarcinoma, a pancreatic ductal carcinoma. But the principles of staging are quite similar. So what you're doing is you're looking for evidence of vascular involvement. And so for a distal bile duct stricture, that's things like, is the portal vein or SMV involved? Um, is there arterial involvement? And then for uh, perihilar uh, tumours and gallbladder tumours, you're looking for the relationship for the uh, right and left portal vein and the right and left uh, uh, arterial supply of the liver. So then also you're looking at evidence of metastatic disease, both in the liver and elsewhere. So it's a complex area and, and um, we could talk about it for ages, but I think that actually those are, those are broadly speaking how I would approach those groups. The, the next thing is, of course, many of them are jaundiced. And so that jaundice is going to play a really vital part in how, what we do next for that patient. And uh, particularly in the patients who have operable disease, um, the dilemma then you often have is how should we manage that jaundice? Um, so those are all really co- kind of controversial issues in HPV surgery. And, but maybe I'll limit that discussion to if there's one thing that the MRCS exam loves, it's um, diagnostic criteria. So maybe we could talk a bit about that for cholangiocarcinoma. So you've got a patient in front of you who's presented with painless obstructive jaundice. Like you say, you've done a triple phase CT and there's a sinister looking um, stricture or lesion. Is that enough or um, is there further criteria you need to fulfil before you can say that this is a cholangiocarcinoma? So, in our patient population with biliary strictures, obtaining a t- definitive tissue diagnosis can sometimes be difficult. From my exams, I remember something that was important to differentiate was the level of obstruction. So, is this a distal uh, extrahepatic stricture or is it a hilar stricture? So, understanding the level of obstruction is going to be really important, um, particularly around treatment planning. Um, and that's why that high-quality cross-section imaging is really valuable. Um, are there other tests which are of value? Um, MRI of the liver may be used to help further delineate, delineate the level of obstruction and the involvement of underlying structures. Similarly, PET scan uh, increasingly widely used to look for evidence of metastatic disease. Um, and it now I think, forms part of the cri- nice criteria for um, management of pancreatic cancer, for example. Um, then the next question you have is about obtaining a tissue diagnosis. The, there are a number of factors in the scan which kind of increase your diagnostic certainty and concern about a mass. I think in our practice in Newcastle, and there is some variability around the UK about how people approach new patients presenting with biliary strictures. I think if we break it down then into the level of obstruction. So for a, a distal biliary stricture, that patient will... Uh, their management will be guided very much by the level of the jaundice. If they have a low level of jaundice, we may arrange for them to have an endoscopic ultrasound, which is a, an advanced endoscopic technique which allows us to visualise the, the lesion and potentially take a biopsy. Um, for higher lesions, it can be difficult to obtain a, a, a 
uh, a biopsy um, and so on endoscopic ultrasound you may be able to visualize some abnormal lymph nodes for example the other way to obtain tissue is by brushing an endoscopy or by PTC but again the yield of those diagnostically are, are less good so once you have the diagnosis how do you move forward in terms of management thinking operative management and uh, neoadjuvant therapies chemotherapy etc I think for any patient like this most centres, well all centres, should have a, an MDT and those patients should be discussed formally in that setting um, and uh, as, as part of that workup um, they should have an anaesthetic assessment to determine their fitness. Um, the management will be determined by the level as I said, so distal strictures will maybe going on to have something like a, a pancreatic duodenectomy, either a pylorus preserving operation or um, a classic Whipple operation. Um, higher lesions, so higher lesions or some gallbladder cancers may require liver resection, either left or right sided, um, plus um, biliary reconstruction. Um, actually, the total number of resections for higher lesions around the UK is, is relatively low, and that's because a lot of those patients often present with advanced disease that's unresectable. Um, so, then thinking about unresectable disease. Unfortunately, in HPV cancer surgery, presentation with advanced disease is, is, a, is a very common problem. And um, uh, we can explore and thought, think about in our minds why that might happen. But it's something which, as a community, we really sort of seek to improve uh, with earlier diagnostics and factors like that. Um, but, but for many of our patients, we have to focus on effective palliation, uh, either in the form of managing some of their side effects of, of of the uh, disease with jaundice or other problems, um, and then also thinking about referral for um, systemic therapy uh, or radiotherapy. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Um, it's been enjoyable um, and very informative. Thanks, Tom. I really enjoyed uh, preparing for this uh, uh, Scrubcast uh, podcast, and I, I hope uh, that you continue to, with the process because I think that hopefully it'll be helpful for people revising. Thank you for coming along. Tune in again next time for another episode of Scrubcast Excellence.